Uh, good morning, church. It's been almost 20 years that I've been coming to this church. It'll be 20 years this fall, uh, n- not regularly, of course. Uh, many of you probably don't recognize me, but um, 17 years ago yesterday, Jenny and I were married right here. Uh, so that was fun to think about in terms of life stage and uh, where all of us have been in the intervening time. The last week has been a little bit intense for us. Well, the last little while. We uh, just closed on our house. We sold our house in Minnesota. We just sold our car yesterday, and my keychain is getting very thin uh, as we get ready to go. Two weeks from today, we fly out to Germany. And so we are excited. Uh, We have three children. They're not with us this morning. They're with family in the Omaha area for a family reunion. Uh, But we're very glad to be with you. Uh, Many family and uh, friends from a long time, so we're glad to be with you. I'm going to share a little bit of my story of how we got to where we are today. And then Jenny's going to share some of her story, and then I'll share a bit of a message with you. Um, But let's pray as we begin. Father God, thank you for your church. Thank you for the called out ones who are known by your name. God, we thank you for your people here in Maxwell, Nebraska. Thank you for your people in Berlin, Germany. Thank you for your people all around the world. Now, we thank you that you make it possible to be reconciled to you and to one another. Lord, we ask that you would be here, be with us, and lead this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the email that I had been expecting, or at least hoping for, for about 20 years. Uh, Just about two years ago, I was standing in the kitchen. It still smelled like the pancakes that we'd had for breakfast. At that point, I had been a professor of international studies, teaching missions and intercultural studies, international relations at Crown College in Minnesota. I had been teaching there for about six years at that point. I was about to head out for the day of teaching when a message came through on my phone, and it was a friend of mine asking if we would ask God if he might be leading us into international ministry in Berlin. What an intense 20 years of waiting. In high school, I first felt the Lord's call into missions. I went to college at Grace University in Omaha, which no longer exists, but I went there to pursue missions aviation. I was going to be a missionary bush pilot. That was my plan. But 9-11 slowed down my flight training just enough that I was able to see more clearly the call of God toward working with people instead of the aircraft. I loved flying. I loved the machine, uh, but the Lord was leading me in a different way. And at the same time, I heard a mission speaker who inspired me to clarify with God whether he might be leading me into international ministry. I remember one night during a missions conference at the college talking with Jenny in one of the academic building stairwells late at night, telling her that it was definitely possible that God was calling me overseas. And I thought that might be the end of our relationship. I also remember that right in the middle of that conversation, the security guard came and kicked us out, which was like super awkward, right? (laughs) I'm so glad 
that it wasn't the end of our relationship. I changed my major to uh, the college's missions major, intercultural studies it was called, and went with my college's program to study under the leadership of missionaries and local pastors for six months in Mexico. And Jenny studied there for 10 weeks uh, in a related program. There have been a few times since then that we thought we might be headed into missions. There was an opportunity right after college where some folks from Ecuador said, hey, we think maybe you'd be a fit for this. Could you check it out? And we had a call with them, and it just didn't seem like the Lord was in it, so we didn't go. Instead, we kept asking him for the next right step, learning to respond in small ways along the way. He led us into working with the college environment, which was a surprise to me. It wasn't something that I had planned to do. But we started, I uh, worked at the University of Nebraska at Kearney for about a year and a half. And then after some part-time work, did uh, three full-time years of teaching intercultural studies at Grace in Omaha. In 2007, I taught my first college course to a group of Grace University students in Mali, West Africa. I was kind of jumping in at the deep end. I was teaching cultural anthropology while I was experiencing this new environment for the first time. Uh, And it was really fun, and it was really hard, and it was really cool to see what God was doing in the lives of the students that I was working with. I also began to learn while I was there about the new stage of world missions, Because as we were there working, we were actually hosted by the Malian church instead of by a North American missions agency. And so I began to learn from African pastors what it looks like to partner well in this new world of missions. At the same time, we began learning the hard work of developing healthy relationships across church partnerships within the U.S., across cultural, racial, economic lines within the U.S., And some of that stuff is so complicated. And sometimes you think, how can we be part of the same family? But the blood of Jesus brings us together. And it's so rich. In 2013, we moved to Crown College and into ministry with the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the organization that we're going with now. We worked with students in Guatemala, in the Dominican Republic, and I visited missionaries and church works uh, in Asia and Europe and the U.S., and the Lord grew in us a love for that particular family uh, that's sending us now. Thinking back to that morning in the kitchen two years ago, I think I, I got the message on my phone, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, Jenny, look, and then I left for the day, <laughs> which maybe was a little rude, um, It's funny how something as small as a few lines of text in an email can change so much in your life. That week, we traded off between moments of excitement and dread as we began pressing in, asking, Lord, is this what you have for us? When we heard back from him, uh, I was sharing this with the Sunday school uh, this morning, it was like this clear but ambiguous answer. He said, yes, engage the process which wasn't like, yes, go. It was just, yes, engage the process. So we began engaging the process. And over the following year, we participated in a bunch of interviews. I mean, so many interviews. It was just, you know, we, we had to make sure that this was the right thing, and they had to make sure it was the right thing. And as we came through every one of those, uh, we just had this increasingly clear confirmation from the Lord that he was calling us to work with Envision Berlin, uh, which is the 
particular ministry that we'll be with. There are in Berlin people, well, there's about three and a half million people there. There are people from 190, maybe 193 countries. There's about 200 countries in the world. So it's like almost everybody got there. I don't know, actually know who didn't get there, but almost everybody is represented there, which means that if we're able to establish gospel witness in Berlin, that there's the opportunity for people from all over the world to come into contact with Jesus. And that's something that we are deeply passionate about. It's estimated, though, that in Berlin, less than 1.5% of people know Jesus. And this is something that's kind of shocking because it was such a Christian country for such a long time. Some of the most important developments in the last 500 years of church history happened in Germany. But today, in East Germany, former East Germany, where we'll be living, something like 85% of people are not affiliated religiously at all. And so part of our role is to go and to speak the name of Jesus and to lift up the name of Jesus and to reintroduce people to who Jesus is and what it means to be part of the church. We'll be working alongside church planters who are working in Arabic and German and Spanish and Chinese. And I suspect that with all those other people groups there, that that list will continue to grow. Our role is to come alongside them and to support them and to help them work with each other. When you have these four very different language groups doing church, there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding between them. And part of our role is to help bring understanding between them to remind people that we're in the same family. It's something that we didn't see coming, but something that the Lord had been leading us to for a long time. So we're so glad to be here with you as we're getting ready to go. It'll be hard to be gone uh, from some of you for a very long time. Um, but it feels like this is a good place to be this morning as we get ready to go. Uh, Jenny's going to share some of her story, and then I'll come back and share a little message with you. So as we um, started our process on this journey, we were encouraged to write down our story of how God has called us um, to this next step. And I have, I have it written down here, and I told myself in lots of different ways that I wasn't going to cry. Um, but I feel very blessed um, yeah, to be here and see so many who are part of my growing up, part of my, my Jesus story. Um, and I know there are many who aren't here. Um, but yeah, I just have felt very blessed um, by my grounding in the word here. Um, yeah, and by all of you that have been a part of my life and part of my journey. Just a little bit further and just a little bit closer. That's what God has been teaching me. The call to follow him just a little farther from where I'm comfortable and a little closer to him. Here are a few examples. 
Growing up here in a small town on a ranch, overseas travel wasn't a part of my pattern. I learned God's word, how to love my neighbor, how to drive across the sand hills, how to rake hay, and how to train my horse, but how to live and navigate in another country wasn't a practice skill. So when I had an opportunity to travel with a concert band for three weeks in Europe after I graduated high school, I didn't think it was something I would do. But after talking to mom and dad and working through the details, I found myself on an airplane headed to Washington, D.C., and then to Europe. I wanted to study music education. I was accepted and got a scholarship to a Christian college in Omaha because I felt like it was close while also being in a big city that provided opportunities to see things I hadn't gotten to see or experience where I grew up. When we were dating, Stephen asked me if I would be open to going to overseas to be a missionary. While it seemed exciting rather than scary, it also wasn't something I had considered at all before. Soon after this discussion, I decided to go to Mexico for the summer to study Spanish and to add an English as a second language certificate to my music education degree. This trip felt like an extension of my trip to Europe. Still safe, just a little farther. In 2005, we were married and in Omaha, a comfortable place for us, but we felt the lack of community around us. We felt led to start participating in a house church. It was weird and unfamiliar, but it had a sense of closeness to Jesus that felt right. We dove into learning about God, getting to know each other, and living a life in community. In the fall of 2007, we moved to Kearney, which was so close to family. It was familiar in its Midwest town feel, small, sort of rural, but also a college town. Because I had learned the importance of community, I sought after a group of people that would support me as a young mother. A young mother, I stumbled upon my Lutheran ladies, a book study group of moms that met weekly. We brought our kids and discussed life, God, family, and how to love well. These ladies welcomed me and gave me a sense that even in a town that wasn't really home, that someone knew me and accepted me. In the summer of 2009, we moved back to Omaha with two kids and back to a familiar neighborhood and job. But having gained a sense of belonging and purpose, we loved our Hispanic neighborhood, our yard to garden in, our house church, our friends, some familiar and some brand new. 2012 was a hard year in a lot of ways. I was pregnant with William, our youngest, and Stephen had been just been let go from his job teaching at Grace University, and we were wrestling with the question of where God was leading us. I knew that God had been leading me, leading us, for a long time, but so often it was really hard to tell what he was leading us to. In 2013, we moved to Minnesota, so far from home, but not unfamiliar somehow. Northern farmers are different than Nebraska ranchers, but there are some similarities. In one church we visited, they talked about there was a transplant of, like, ranchers to that community, and there were cowboy hats sitting up on their, um, yeah, up on their hat rack and their bolo ties, which was a new phenomenon, apparently, for that community. I cried the first time in our new church in Minnesota. I missed my home church. I missed the intimate feeling of being in someone's home and the feeling like my family fit. I began praying and seeking God like I hadn't done before. I 
and learn the presence of his spirit. Even in the midst of a smelly apartment with two young boys and a daughter starting a new school, he met me in that place. He taught me to listen, to feel, through the people of our church in Minnesota. He taught me that the spirit was with me in ways that I hadn't known before. At home, in our house in Watertown, I saw green and growing things again in my yard. Walking to the coffee shop, watching my kids in sports, concerts, or other school events, going to the beach or one of the many playgrounds, seeing tractors driving down Main Street. A neighbor that was so great, college students that came in and out of our house, some at late hours, but all being an integral part of our world, the world had got, that God had given us there. So why move from this? Why take seriously an invitation to move to Germany, to learn a new language, start new schools, move away from family? Because in all of these places, he was gently teaching me and calling me to his next, a little farther and a little closer. He's been calling me in each place, in each friend, in each church, in each house. Each step, he was calling me, calling me to be a part of his work. So I'm taking that next step, that step to use my passion for mentoring and discipling the younger generations, my desire for others to know the true Jesus and to know his true love. And to be, to live as a part of God's kingdom, wherever that may be. But I hope it will always be a little farther from where I'm comfortable and a little closer to him. Take Christ, live Christ, give Christ. I love these words at the front of this church. And uh, I don't know, it was maybe 10 years ago I had the opportunity to preach here. And we talked about those words. There's so much there. What does it mean to live having received Jesus as your Savior? What does it mean to live in a way that others have the opportunity to receive Jesus as their Savior? These are questions that I've been thinking about, in part because when we were accepted by the mission organization to go overseas, we got this nice letter that said, uh, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you as one of our missionaries. Uh, but by the way, please keep in mind as well that in the sovereignty of God, there will be times of testing, maybe even suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that got my attention. I think it was supposed to. Because I, I've had jobs that were uncomfortable before. I've had jobs that I didn't always like. But I don't remember any job at the front end saying, by the way, in this job, things might be going well and you might suffer. Like, you might be doing things exactly right and suffering might be the natural result of that. I don't remember having seen that before. So it caught my attention. In the letter, they gave a reason. They said Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, 
We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired even of life. But this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I think even in this process of getting ready to go, as we've experienced various elements of pressure, various elements of uh, discouragement or sadness in, in the hardness of leaving behind friends and family and job and things that were familiar, we find ourselves over and over again realizing that we don't have the resources in ourselves to be who it is that God has called us to be. And so it has to be his spirit in us filling us to be who it is that he's called us to be, that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. But I, I kept wrestling with this question of why would we sign up for a job that says, expect suffering? Why would we do that? What is worth that? Because usually in life, the pattern is that we try to minimize suffering, right? We take medicine when we don't feel well, try to get a more comfortable bed, we try to get a car that drives a little bit nicer, whatever it is, we want to reduce our discomfort and increase our comfort and avoid suffering. So why would anybody sign up for something where the expectation is that suffering very well might be a part of it. And it's not just us. There are 50 of us being sent out by our mission this year. Why would we sign up for that? And I was thinking about the question of what is the story that we're living for? What is the big picture? What does all of this mean? And I was thinking about some of the stories that I ask my students every year. I've been teaching at this Christian college, and I ask students when they come in, tell me what the gospel is, right? What is the story of the gospel? What is the invitation of Jesus? And sometimes even students who come from church backgrounds give really disappointing answers about what the gospel is. And I was thinking about that and thinking about if I believed one of those things about the gospel, I don't know if it would be worth it. There, there's a version of the gospel. There's a fancy name for it. I'll give you that, and then I'll, I'll explain it. It's moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically says be good, uh, feel good, and God is distant. And I have had students who come in saying that that's the gospel. Be good. But Jesus said, actually, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not good enough. And that means that none of us is good enough. So if your gospel is be good and hang on for heaven, it's not enough. The part of the gospel that they believed that said, feel good, the therapeutic part, right, said that if I ever experience suffering, it means that something's wrong with my faith. Because God is kind of like this cosmic gummy ball machine, right? I put in a prayer, and he gives me comfort. I put in a prayer, he gives me money. I put in a prayer, and I get what I want. 
And if, if I put in a prayer and I don't get what I want, the gumball machine is broken, right? And so my faith must be broken. But that wasn't what Jesus said to expect at all. He said that if he experienced opposition, we should experience, we should expect to experience it as well. So if, if we come to the understanding that the gospel is be good and feel good and God is distant, we don't have the resources to engage in the missional work of God. And that doesn't matter where we live. That's not about living overseas or living in Maxwell or wherever we are. It's an insufficient story. It doesn't have enough truth in it. I have other students who've come in and said, I think the gospel is really about winning. I think it's about being in charge and making other people live right. Which is interesting because when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, those are the people he seemed to have the most trouble with. Those are the people that he called a brood of vipers. <clears throat> the people who said, we can figure out the best way to be and make everybody else be that. He had no patience for that at all. There was no life in it. He said to people like that, you observe these ridiculous parts of the law and you neglect the things that really matter. You don't pay attention to the heart. And so the students that have come in saying, I think the gospel is about holding on to power, have missed something about what Jesus is calling them to, to come down the ladder instead of up it. I also have had students who come in saying, well, I'm going to do Christianity for now because it works for me. And if it stops working for me, I'll stop doing Christianity. It's kind of a, a nihilism, this idea that nothing really matters in the end. So if it works for me, that's great. It's useful. And if it doesn't work for me, if I go somewhere else and other people aren't Christian there, then I guess I won't be Christian there. I'll just kind of do what works. And the problem with that is that truth is lost, right? If the gospel is true, the gospel is true no matter where you are and no matter how well it seems to be working for you. So what is it that we are giving our lives to? What is it that each one of us is called to if we take seriously the invitation to take Christ, to live Christ, and to give Christ. What is it? I, I think there are a lot of good ways of describing the gospel. But there are four things that I want to just mention briefly. Because I think there's something about the way that we talk about the gospel that sometimes we talk so much about how it happens about Jesus on the cross, about his death, burial, and resurrection, which, of course, is crucial. It's the, it's the thing, right? But sometimes we forget to talk about what it accomplishes in our life. We forget to talk about why. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why is he inviting us into life? 
And what effects does that have? So, of course, salvation is first. Romans 1.16, if you want to look there. I'm, I'm in the ESV, which I know is different than what you're used to. It's the, the English Standard Version. But I'll just read this here. Paul's writing, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's this beautiful invitation into salvation. We read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that it's not by works so that we can't boast. It's not about what we've accomplished. But interestingly, in verse 10 in Ephesians, we do find that God has prepared works in advance for us to do, to partner with him. We've been saved by faith. But one of the things that that does, and and we've talked about this a little bit, when we talk about the people from all these different backgrounds that we're going to be working with, who go by the name of Jesus, who say that Jesus is their Lord, uh, but they worship in different languages. One of the things that is so interesting to me is what happens in 1 Peter 2, 8 through 10. This is one of my favorite things in Scripture. Uh, Actually, I'm sorry. Let me start in verse 10. Well, I'll start in verse 9. All right, here we go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that. Once you were not a people. When you think about all of the people who know Jesus around the world, we are not a people, right? We're all of these different peoples, all these different people groups. Even in this room, if you go back historically, we were from different people groups. And God says, I'm making something new here. I'm calling you out into this new race, this royal priesthood. You who were not a people are now a people. And I just think that is beautiful. I've had the opportunity to worship with brothers and sisters around the world, and it is so rich. Even people whose language I don't know, and yet I recognize the Spirit of God among them, and we praise Jesus together, and it's beautiful. There's this work in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, of reconciliation. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, God, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is the story of the gospel? It's that God was reconciling us to him. We had a broken relationship with God the Father, and we could not fix it. And because of that, Jesus came and died to bring us into a right relationship with God. 
that is so much of the why of the gospel. Why did Jesus die? Because God wanted to reconcile us. And then this give, price, this give Christ feast, right, that Paul says we are ambassadors because we become agents of that same reconciliation. We let people know, hey, God is good, and we're not. And that's a problem. And God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. That's a good story. It's a rich story. There's one more that I want to share with you. Because I think for me, this is something that maybe especially as we reflect back on the last few years, it's something that gives me great hope. And it's from the passage that we read uh, earlier. It's from Philippians 3, 20. And I'll go maybe a verse or two after that. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I just love this. Our citizenship is in heaven. It, we're Americans, right? We live here. This is, this is where we have uh, some of us our passports from. This is the place uh, that shows up on our birth certificate. This is the place that we're from. But in Christ, we have a new and better and fuller citizenship where we don't have to worry about who's in charge. We have a ruler who is always good who always cares about righteousness, who always is moving things toward their right end. And that's why Paul says, we eagerly await a Savior from there. There is a foundation that cannot be shaken, and that's where our king sits. And that's good news. It means that no matter what's happening in our political reality, no matter what's happening around us, that we belong to a place where there is always goodness. And we belong to a person who is always good. When I think about why would I sign up, why would we sign up, why would we disrupt our kids' lives? Why would we make things uh, difficult for some of you who are related to us? Why would we engage any of that? There has to be a story that makes it worth it. And I think the story that makes it worth it is that our God saves us. He invites others into that reconciled relationship. He makes a new people, and he has created this kingdom that he's invited us into and he's invited us to invite others into. And ultimately, he will set all things right. And in the meantime, we will eagerly wait for his coming. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are always good. Lord, that you know us, that you love us, and that in the midst of our inability to be good, 
you give goodness to us, not because we earned it, but because you chose to give it to us. Lord, be our righteousness. In Jesus' name.